4: What is it really going to take to heal ourselves, our communities, and our planet? I'm Alicia Silverstone, and this is The Real Heal. Every one of us has the power to heal our planet. When we work together and make eco-conscious choices, we can make a big difference— But where do we start? What steps can we take to begin caring for our planet, our home? In this episode, I sit down with Dr. Zach Bush, a triple board certified physician and founder of the nonprofit Farmers Footprint, and Ed Begley Jr., a seven-time Emmy-nominated actor and lifelong environmental activist. We talk about actionable changes we can all make in our everyday lives to heal our environment, our families, and ourselves. So without further ado, let's get in to the Real Heal. Hi you guys. I'm so excited to have this conversation with both of you. Ed, you've always been my eco-mentor, and I am just love being able to ask you so many questions over the years. I have so much respect for what you do. So thank you for coming, Ed.
5: Thank you for having me, Alicia.
4: And Zach, I discovered you two years ago or something, and... I'm so impressed by you. I want everyone to go to your website and read up about everything that you're doing, how you talk about health, the planet, everything. You are so inspiring. The way you live your life, both of you are such inspiring people. And I just think, Zach, that you are um, doing tremendous work through the, through the web, and I'm so grateful. So thank you for coming and having this conversation with us.
6: Glad to be with you all. Glad to be living with Ed for a moment.
4: Yeah.
5: (laughs) Thank you, Zach.
4: So I know, Ed, that you have talked about that when you first started your journey, you didn't have a lot of money. You were not, because I think a lot of people think that making eco choices is about being rich or having enough means to do so. And I really want to focus in today on what we can all do and how it's not about what you have. And can you talk about that?
5: Yeah, I was a broken, struggling actor when I started this environmental path back in 1970. My dad had just died, and he was—he was my meal ticket. You know, he paid a lot of my bills or what have you. I was starting to take over those bills as I worked a bit as an actor and a lot as a camera assistant back then. But then Earth Day came along, and I wanted to do something because my dad died within a few days of the first Earth Day, and he was a conservative that liked to conserve. He turned off the lights and turned off the water. He was a son of Irish immigrants. He lived through the Great Depression, so. I got a lot of that inspiration from him. You know, I couldn't afford to do much. And people come up to me today and they say, I can't afford nine kilowatts of solar like you or a fancy electric car like you. I go, I understand, neither could I when I started. Can you afford to get a bus pass if you could ride public transportation if it's available near you? Can you afford to ride a bicycle? Can you afford to change one light bulb? Many utilities give them away. Can you afford to use baking soda, vinegar and water instead of harsh cleansers? You know, and on and on, I list those. That incredible list that's available today of cheap and easy stuff, picking that low-hanging fruit. And then I promise you, as I sit here before you both, you're going to save money, and then you can do some more. Do some medium-ticket items. And one day, God willing, as I got lucky and did, some big-ticket items after 15 to 20 years of saving money on the cheap stuff.
4: That's so great. And what would you say was the reason that you were compelled, aside from your dad— being conservative, why did it matter to you to do these things? Why did you care about changing the light bulb?
5: Yeah, my dad was a good influence. Boy Scouts was a good influence. I got to see nature up close and personal and thought it was worth preserving. But the negative, if you will, was living in smoggy LA. We have four times the cars in LA from 1970, millions more people, but we have a fraction of the smog. We've done a very good job of cleaning it up and we can do that. Then the Santa Barbara oil spill, the Cuyahoga River catching fire, but especially living in smoggy air in LA, that was the big one. That's awesome.
4: And Zach, what about you? I mean, I know that you are a doctor and you care so much about the earth and people's health and how it's all connected. How did this start for you? Why did you make this journey? I think that you also went vegan at some point, but I don't know if that has partly to do with your journey or what.
6: Uh, My journey began uh, in unexpected places, I guess, in uh, designing chemotherapy at the University of Virginia back in 2005, 2010. That was a lot of my research. I was in internal medicine, then endocrinology and metabolism. And the word metabolism really refers to the capacity of the human body to make energy. And as you look deeper into the topic of energy in biologic systems, you find some fascinating microcosms of what we see Ed talking about now that he sees pollution and dysfunction going on on the planet, it turns out the same thing is happening at the cellular level to give us epidemics of cancer, epidemics of autoimmune disease, epidemics of metabolic disorders like diabetes, obesity, uh, heart disease, and the like. And so what we are learning in the last 30 years as we've really started to untangle metabolism and genomics is that we are what we breathe, what we eat, what we see, what we touch. We we are a contiguous biology with the planet. And so when we see air pollution, you, know, you have that same phenomenon happening at the cellular level. And it's been very obvious perhaps, but I think a fascinating journey for me over the last you know, 15 years is I've started to realize that you cannot... Choose to make people healthy. I, I can sit there all day in my clinic and make decisions, you know, for one patient at a time. But there's, it's absolutely impossible for me to prevent or else my cure disease if I don't start to work on the planet. But that's how I found myself into this pathway of leaving the university in 2010 and setting out with a desire to really discover the opportunity to find a science and an education platform and start to innovate in areas of energy technologies and the like so that we can start to understand how not only can we clean up the planet, we actually have the science right now and the technological opportunity to make the most abundant life on the planet because we now understand carbon cycles. And so instead of demonizing CO2 and all of this, we need to understand how that is actually the literal fuel for life on Earth. And we need to reconnect the carbon cycle for life to reoccur. Really, we have the opportunity to push beyond some previous thing and do what Mother Nature does best, which is innovate every time. Life always comes back more intelligent, more abundant, more biodiverse. That's going to happen again. Or in a couple hundred years, we could be the co-creators with that Mother Earth as we connect those dots.
4: Mm. Those are such big things and I want to get into all of that. And I thought perhaps we could start by saying the most simple things that we think of that people can do to make these changes in their daily lives because, and then we can get into the, we can go bigger and bigger and bigger. You know, when I think about what are the things that affect us, that lead us to the path that you just said, that are leading us to this destruction? What are the most critical things that we do in our daily lives that do that? And and for me, I think it's food. I think it's the clothes that we purchase where you can make easy choices to go to your thrift store instead of buying new clothing and instead of getting your, or go to the real real if you want something fancy. And if you're going to buy new things, there are organic and natural materials and good eco companies out there who are doing really responsible things. So fast fashion and all that has got to go. And if you're going to use products in your home, that you haven't made, there are good responsible ones out there. I was on a hike with my son the other day and there was, I was very disturbed because it's a beautiful hike, but everyone had a plastic bottle in their hand. And I was just like, what is going on? You're on a hike in Los Angeles in nature, walking to a waterfall with plastic bottles and Cheetos. Like what's going on? And, and, um, really (laughs) hurt my heart. And, So anyway, what would you say, other than the things that I've mentioned, are the things that people can do right now that are so easy? What are the things that you guys think are the most important things that I haven't mentioned?
6: From my perspective, the phenomenon of energy and health for the planet is really going to come back to the energetics of our behavior. And so the little things that we can do is start to change our mindset from being a consumer to being a co-creator, to be in receipt of nature's bounty and co-create with her. If we just do the little things and don't start to change the big thing, which is our, our mindset of who we are and how we collaborate with the earth, uh, we'll still fall short of the massive transformation that we need to make as a species. So uh, that little switch, how can you stop being a consumer and start being a co-creator?
4: That's beautiful. That reminds me of the idea that Because a lot of people sort of want the government to take care of all of this or corporations to take care of this. And it's not wrong to want that. We all need to work together. But I think if you don't take care of it yourself first and do what you said, have a reshift. The act of refilling your water bottle, for I'm sure for Ed and I and you, when you're filling your bottle, there's just such a sense of connection, that you're doing something responsible and kind and thoughtful and not unconsciously. And I think that that all of those choices that we make, all of those little choices that we make that are conscious and good for the earth are us being awake and present to what this life is. And each person has to do this on their own. They have to make these choices on their own for the sake of their children, for the sake of the future, for the sake of now, for good air, for good water, for good food, or even just for their health.
5: Yeah, I'm so glad you're both of you remembering to talk about diet. It's so important. That's one of the best things you can do is even if you're a meat eater and I'm, I'm not, I became a vegetarian back in 1970 with the first Earth Day I stopped eating meat and then I later became a vegan. I went further and enjoy that. But uh, that's one of the best things you can do. But even if you're a person that likes their meat, try one day a week, as most people would suggest. Most doctors, AMA, kind of typical doctors would say, yeah, eat more plant foods, eat your broccoli. You know, try it just one day a week, having a vegan diet one day a week. And if you like it, do it two, do it three, then maybe one day, all seven. And uh, it's one of the best things you can do for the environment. And I like what Zach said about the overall theme of doing this. It's fine. And so the theme... beneath what we're talking about, all of us are talking about, not just saving money, this or that. The theme is being part of something extraordinary, you know, to be an integral part of it, which we are. We can deny that we are, but we are, like it or not, and to move us in a direction away from the the destruction that we've been, we seem to be on that path for so long now and move towards the kind of change that we need to be and we need to see so that nature has a chance to, you know, revive and do well again in spite of all that we've done we've done a lot of damage but look at the way things bounce back we've cleaned up a lot of these horrible horrible messes and we can do even more so let's get on that path and have that common theme for our well-being it's not just save the spotted owls and the snow leopard i hope we do that but we're also saving ourselves and we're being an integral important part of nature
3: Join us as we try to solve a 35-year-old cold case. It's not going to be easy, but it's going to be one hell of a ride. (gasps) What? I can't believe this. Listen to season two of The Girlfriends, Our Lost Sister, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.
1: From BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast is going on a road trip.
4: This brings me to the conversation of hope, which you're both talking about. You have a quote I found, Zach. Well, this is maybe it's not a quote. It's just about what you guys are doing. You have a coalition of farmers, educators, doctors, scientists and business leaders aiming to expose the human environmental impacts of chemical farming and offer a path forward through regenerative agriculture practices. And that is what you founded. And you said that you believe that we can heal. I don't think it's too late for us to turn our microbiome around, but we have to do it very, very quickly and we have to do it together. I love that we're all talking about hope, that while there are these devastating things happening, there is so much hope and we can turn it around. And this other quote I have from you is, pharmaceutical chemicals and drugs are now the main ingredient in our foods. It's time for the American consumer to empower our farmers to take back our food and our right to the health that the food should bring us and our children. And your nonprofit is creating avenues for collaborative action for all stakeholders in our global community for a genitive future of health for the planet and our children.
6: Yeah. So regenerative agriculture is a description of a, a potential. It's not prescriptive as you would find um, with a lot of systems like organic. If you go to the USDA organic thing, it's basically a list of 30 things you can't do. And to get that USDA organic certification, it doesn't actually mention anything about soil, microbiome nutrients, anything that's actually vital to the consumer. And so when we start to shift towards these prescriptive regulatory environment beliefs about food systems, we end up saying a bunch of no's, you know, and we become anti. And anti is a very weak position ever. (laughs) You don't want to be anti anything. You want to be pro something. And so Ed is pro planet. Ed's practices, Ed's lifestyle is showing us a pathway towards pro vitality really. And so uh, this is what we need to start to think of in the farming world, where we need our farmers to have a whole host of, of resources at their, and practices at their fingertips that would allow them to wake up every morning to think about two things. How do I increase the amount of energy in my soil systems and how do I increase the amount of biodiversity within those soil systems to allow them to produce as much as possible and to be as, as vital for the planet as possible. And so when you talk about regenerative systems, it's really how much of that carbon can you get cycling from air back into soil, back into the plant, back in there. So regenerative practices start with disturb the soil less and maximize the amount of respiration or breath that the soil can take. And to do that, stopping plowing is a critical piece, which is interesting because the plow is often credited with the beginning of Western civilization. If you pick up up a Western Civ book, it says it starts with the invention of the plow. And so in the end, we destroyed civilization with that plow by not understanding our relationship to soil microbial life. And then we accelerated that massively when we created herbicides and pesticides. So you stop plowing and you stop spraying the, the antimicrobials or the herbicides And very importantly, you keep the soil covered. Covered soil always has earthworms. Bare soil bakes the earthworms out of it. And you can do this just in a simple temperature test in the middle of Ohio, 90 degree day in the summertime. If you stick a thermometer in the soil of a conventional farm that keeps all of its soil bare, except for that one row of corn that shoots for 10,000 acres, that soil can reach 130, 140 degrees next door at a regenerative farm where they don't remove all of the organic material and instead they use a roller crimper or they use livestock to crush down the cover crops and they keep that armor of organic mass on top of the soil, the soil temperature is always 72, 73 degrees even if it's 100 degrees outside. If you need an economic model for why we need to do this, uh, topsoil remains a good one. Right now in the United States, we're losing about two tons of topsoil per acre of farmed land per year. That's the equivalent of 11% of our GDP. Our gross domestic product in this country is around $17 trillion. 11% of that, somewhere around $1.9 trillion of assets of topsoil are being washed off of our farms every year now. And so if you want an economic model of loss of energy of a, of a, a country, welcome to farming today. We have to fundamentally change our relationship. And by doing so, we will store a future, an economic future, for the generations to come by watching that topsoil recover. And we can rebuild topsoil. There's a fallacy that that takes 100 years to build a centimeter topsoil. We can do that at 10x, even 20x, that kind of rate when we go to regenerative
5: practices. Yeah, one of the most important parts of me buying my first home in 1979, I had two very young children, and I wanted them to know where food came from, that it didn't come from the Ralph's tree or the Safeway bush, that it came from healthy soil, water, sunshine. That's definitely the way to go, and it's very important that people connect for their food, for their own sanity. There's nothing more powerful than young kids that I brought to my many different houses to give an eco tour, and they get their hands in the dirt, you have them pick up, and it's crawling with worms, you go, that's healthy soil. And I've always had that because of the practices, you know, done for thousands of years with people around the world. It's
4: beautiful. Yeah. I love growing my own food. And I remember coming to your house and wandering through your beautiful garden and seeing all your fruit trees. And But growing your own food and picking it is, the like you said, when children do that, there's so many people that they're kids, they don't eat vegetables. But once they start touching them and eating them off the vine, they're just like,
5: oh, my God. It's a powerful connection for a young person. Very important.
4: So how are we going to build our armies to do this? Like, how does one who's going, I want to only support this kind of farming, looking for biodynamic farming, how do I make sure that that's what's happening? And then on a bigger scale, how are you teaching or how are you educating or inspiring these farmers to do it differently? Because There's a study from the Sentience Institute that says 99% of all animal products in the U.S. come from factory farms. Like We argue over how much a chicken can raise its wings, for God's sakes. Billion-dollar companies, these huge corporations, they just fight over the stupidest little thing because of a penny. What are you doing about this?
6: (laughs) Well, we're all in it together. And what can we all do? We're all in it together. So, there's a lot of things we can do. So, uh, you know, if you start with your backyard, like Ed did, uh, it's a very powerful tool. The fourth largest crop that we grow in the United States you got corn, soybean, wheat. Number four is lawn. We grow millions and millions of acres of grass in our backyards across this country which has very little biodiversity, and and actually landowners, uh, homeowners, use more herbicide per acre than any farmer in the world does. And so your practices in your backyard are going to set the tone for this recovery. And so you may not think of yourself as a farmer, but if you have a yard, you are a steward of land. And the way in which you steward that land has a huge effect on where we're at as a planet. And so like Ed did, you stop using all the herbicides, pesticides, and your NPK chemical fertilizers, like your your miracle Grow, has mentioned, things like that. And you start composting and you start using your own carbon cycle again. So all your food waste, your lawn waste, all those things start going back into a compost. You're really looking at keeping biologic systems moving and you want biodiversity in there. And if you keep trying to create a monoculture of a lawn with no weeds in it, i.e., you know, dandelions, and if you let weeds do their work, they actually don't come back the following years. And so whenever you hear CRISPR or gene editing or GMO, what you're really talking about is humans starting to put into play products. They are the crop level or the seed level just so that we can sell more chemical product. It doesn't do anything for the biology of the plant It doesn't make the plant more vital. It doesn't have more nutrients. It doesn't produce more, et cetera, et cetera. And so there's a fallacy that GMO somehow is necessary to feed the world. And so we're in this very interesting race against biology right now where we think of ourselves as separate from, and we think of ourselves in competition with nature. And so when you move from that consumer mechanism of I'm a homeowner and therefore I have a lawn and therefore I need to buy some stuff to keep the lawn alive to a co-creator where suddenly you've got a backyard garden and you've got your compost and you're doing this, you are starting to participate in a cycle of life.
4: That's so beautiful. Ed, do you want to say anything or should I start asking you more questions?
5: Yeah, I'd just like to say that cycle of life is so important. And I certainly do feel it's very, very important that Zach does do something about that bear. Soil that's out there cooking in the sun, and I agree with that, that it has to be that organic matter. But I also do respectfully disagree. I think there's a lot of CO2 that's dangerous coming from power plants and, uh, you know, cars and what have you. So I think we need to do both. I need think we need to have less bare soil and to cut back on the excess CO2 that we're putting out in such great numbers.
4: And we do that through not engaging in these commercial agriculture practices, right? Because
5: Absolutely. And the other stuff we've been talking all about the we've been talking here on this about. show and elsewhere, you know, riding a bike of weather and fitness permit, taking public transportation if it's available near you, yes. all that, buying energy-saving thermostats to turn the, the thermostat down in the winter and up in the summer, stuff like that. Because now that there's so many people on the planet, we just need to behave differently than we did even just 100 years ago.
4: Yeah. And I will provide people with links um, on my website for all of the books that you have written about these things that make it so easy for you to make these changes. Um, Because there's so much that we can do and it's really exciting.
2: I bet you're smart. Yeah, and you like to hold your own in the group chat. We can help you drop even more knowledge.
4: Two things that you just said <laughs> that made me really excited, but also just like, what do we do? Um, you know, I want to get you in a room with Bill Gates. How do we do that? I mean, Bill Gates seems like a smart dude. So why does he not understand this? Is it purely profit driven? He's just like a madman trying to make trillions and trillions of dollars. or I don't think so. Has he not sat down with you guys and understand what is
5: necessary? I've met Bill Gates, and I don't think he's that guy at all. Bill and Melinda Gates are trying to give a lot of money away to causes they feel are very important for the planet. I think he's very well-intentioned. But people just have this delusion. They deal with it in a comical way, but wonderfully in that movie, Don't Look Up. They think they're going to fix this thing with the asteroid coming to Earth with all this. We can do this. And you know there isn't always a magic technological fix. They think all these things are going to be wonderful. There are made by nature, entirely created by God, things like kudzu and hydrilla and all these things that are natural, not GMOs that have escaped on the planet from a place of zebra mussels. And we have a hell of a time controlling them. Now you're going to make something in a lab that you hope you're going to control once it's out there. You can't control the stuff like hydrilla and kudzu and zebra mussels that are native to the earth. You know, they come from another planet and they're in the wrong place. There's no predators for them and things go wild. There's just so much danger. It's like I have a lot of friends, people I'm very close to, good environmentalists who really believe that nuclear power is the answer. I'm not one of them. I say no to GMOs for the same reason. The downside is so down. If people want to, with tight controls, look at things in the lab, okay, fine by me. But to put it out there on corn and all that, there's so much danger involved. I'm not willing to take that risk, and I hope others don't want to take the risk too. I literally think they're doing it because they believe it's good.
4: The amount of farmland that he's bought and does not turn it into biodiverse farms, keeps it running as complete commercial farming. He owns more farmland Uh, than anyone in our entire country. Why?
5: I didn't know that.
6: (laughs) (laughs) well he he does own about uh, 250,000 acres but that's a drop in the bucket compared to our total farming acreage so uh, he's gotten a lot of headlines for that but it's not at all a frightening number to me or the farmers i think we recognize okay. that the vast majority of farmland is controlled by farmers uh, or you know, unfortunately, a, a less and less farmers and more and more large multinational companies that are buying up that farmland. The why is because it's a great buffer against inflation. And so we just printed $4 trillion in the United States for quantitative easing during the pandemic. And that forces a a global uh, push towards uh, inflation and the best thing to invest in at that point when you've got billions of dollars as a pension fund or, you know, a country or a large you know, multinational fund. Fund is to buy up farmland, so everybody's on a farmland rush right now, and this is a, a crisis, I think, because uh, when you go to uh, land that's now being managed by farmers that don't own the land, they have no incentive to do the right thing for the soil because the landowner can make that disappear immediately. It takes about five years for regenerative practices really start to radically change the bottom line for farmers. And it's exciting that it does. You can see 5x and 10x improvements in the bottom line for farmers by going regenerative. And the vast majority of those savings is by saving them the inputs to the soil. The soil becomes its own source as it regains vitality for the the critical building blocks for nutrition for the plants and beyond. And so uh, the farmer to make those right decisions has to put in some effort and a change in, in, in psychology ecology in those first few years. But if they don't own the land, there's a crisis. So I don't see it as predatory necessarily. I do see it as an opportunity for him to to witness an an economic uh, success. If he wants his 280,000 acres uh, to, to be as profitable as possible, he'll go to a regenerative practice management and 5x and 10x the bottom line on that farmland. Unfortunately, that might not be his incentive or his moneymaker's incentives because most of the farmland bought by wealthy people in the United States is actually used as a tax write-off because they expect it to lose money. And then suddenly, five years in, the farmer's making money. And that's a crisis for the landowner. So they go and sell that land out from under the farmer because they can't have a tax write-off anymore. And so these are the bizarre phenomenon that happen when we start to use farmland as something other than food production. As we start to use it as tax shelters or we use it as a hedge on inflation, we don't think of it. And this is, again, moving back to that extractive mindset versus you know, the co-creative mindset.
4: So, I get that all of these things are extremely nuanced, but the very type A part of myself wants to fix this right now. And I know that's not, I know you all feel the same way, but I just feel like if all these really well intentioned people who believe that GMOs are good, let's say we're going to take out the fact that it might be because they want to make money. Let's just give them the benefit of the doubt. It's not nefarious. They truly, genuinely care about feeding people and this earth. Then how can we all get them together in a room to discuss these issues so that we can all collectively decide to kick this thing in the butt and fix it?
6: I think the answer is economic models. You know, and so that's how we're getting people to the table at at, uh, our our Farmer's Footprint. Uh, We just launched our Australia arm, farmersfootprint.org.au, as well as the the U.S. one, which is farmersfootprint.us. And we're bringing all the stakeholders to tables because we're presenting a really, you know, pretty convincing economic incentive to say, hey, everybody can participate in this future of food. In the United States, our food system is around $2 trillion dollars. A uh, $2 trillion industry is going to pivot over the next 10, 20 years. We have our farmland on life support right now. That's where we're at with chemical farming. And so no matter how aggressively they try to innovate technology, and they are trying to be aggressive, and the EPA is complicit in this. EPA has now approved three chemical and now this year five chemical GMO seeds, which means a single seed can be sprayed with Roundup, uh, (laughs) 2,4-D, dicamba, you know, go down the list. And so we have to – we're creating these toxic stews to spray the land because there's so much – GMO, Roundup-resistant weeds that have sprung up as the genetics are shared across biology. And so the EPA has approved three drugs and is in the process of improving five chemical seeds. And so the complicitness of this is because, you know, there's economic incentives that are artificially boosted by taxpayer dollars through the Farm Bill and through the USDA Crop Insurance Programme. Uh, if, for you to get USDA crop <sighs> insurance, you have to be growing uh, a, a commodity that they consider safe. And so you're, you'll get paid to go buy your, your inputs for your year as a farmer if you promise to do chemical farming. If you say, I'm going to do regenerative farming, they won't give you the loan. The bank won't give you the loan because the USDA won't insure your crop if it's not under conventional or USDA organic management. And so, this is where I get excited about biome capital and, and, and thinking about how can we get capital to actually work for the farmer is we can bypass these artificial stop points and we can start to show investors that there's a huge opportunity. If you can 5X or 10X the bottom line for farmers in five years, that is a huge economic opportunity for investors to become part of the solution with the farmers. And in the same way, Nestle is at the table because they see consumers changing. Consumers want to become part of the solution. I I take my hat off to Mark Schneider. He's the the new CEO in the last five years or so for Nestle. And Mark is really out to to beat the ban on this. He publicly stated a few months ago that 98% of the food that Nestle produces is bad for your health. Nobody's ever said that oh, in the food industry.
4: That's lovely. And so
6: to see CEOs wow. of huge multinational, multi-billion dollar corporations saying, we are the problem and we are doing something to change it. He made the pledge that by you know 2030, they'd have something like 14 million tons of regenerative supply chain ingredients in their Nestle food products by 2030. Uh, We are all in this together, and we're all going to have to have a high amount of grace towards one another. And ultimately, I think that we need to boil back to the fact that your health is your number one way in which to vote for a healthy planet.
4: Ed, would you like to say anything else before we sort of wrap up?
5: No, I'd just like to say this has been a wonderful discussion, learning a lot of things here. And uh, I certainly... uh, Appreciate you and all that you've done for the environment for years. I'm so happy to meet you, Zach, and hear about your wonderful work. I'm just proud to be a friend of yours, Alicia, and uh, to talk about these things that are important to us. You know, I mean, there's ways that we can make the world a better place from what we were given, and I certainly want to do that for my children and grandchildren. I have both. So I'm just proud to know you both and to uh, work with you these many years, Alicia, and just all of us try to live simply so that others can simply live.
4: Mm. I love you so much, Ed. You're amazing. You too. a Total hero. So glad people get to have you in this
5: world. Right back at you.
4: Zach, um, thank you for being here. Both of you, thank you just for sharing so much knowledge. And this was such an exciting conversation for me. So inspiring. And I want to make sure that my veggie garden isn't killing the worms <laughs> I think they're fine. I think they're fine. I see them there, but I'm going to just figure that out. Um, So this has just been wonderful. Thank you both so much for all your knowledge. We will provide resources for people because you have both have so much to share and have done so much good in this world. So I will always be on your team fighting for you guys. Thank you so, 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 so much from the bottom of my heart.
6: Thank you, Alicia. Thanks for having us on. Thank you.
4: To dig deeper into this episode's topic and resources, visit thekindlife.com. The Real Heal is an iHeartRadio production made in partnership with Frequency Media. I'm your host, Alicia Silverstone. From iHeartRadio, our managing producer is Lindsay Hoffman. From Frequency Media, Michelle Corey is our executive producer, Jordan Rizzieri is our producer, and Imani Leonard and Laura Boyman are our associate producers. Sydney Evans is our dialogue editor, and Claire Bideggeri-Curtis is our mixer and sound designer. This podcast is available on the iHeartRadio app, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and wherever podcasts are found.